Welcome to AACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer. I work in the publications department at ASCP. And my name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AACP, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. And today, I'm one of your guests as well. Today, we're going to be talking about burnout in the laboratory, which is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. As Loti said, we've got some great guests lined up, so let's, uh, let's get going with some introductions. Dr. Ellie Brown is the Chief Officer of Medical Quality at AACP and is a staff pathologist at Oxner Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. She's an anatomic and clinical pathologist with fellowship training in breast pathology. She has practiced in a variety of settings, including both academics and private practice. In addition to her work as a pathologist, she hosts a woman's health radio show on Mississippi Public Broadcasting and is an avid group fitness instructor. She lives in Mississippi with her husband and two sons. Our very own Dr. Loti Mulder earned her PhD in organizational leadership at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in 2020, where she researched the cultural applicability of leadership training. She earned her Master's of Education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 2013, where she focused on leadership and group development. Here at ASCP, she designs and facilitates the ASCP Leadership Institute and created and directs the ASCP Patients Champions, a program that empowers patients, caregivers, and advocates through education and awareness about diagnostics, lab tests, and pathology follow-up care through the real-life stories of their patients. She's also a founding member of the ASCP Innovation Team and works on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Dr. Joe Sirentrappen is an associate attending and the Director of Pathology Informatics at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Joe also serves as president-elect of the Association for Pathology Informatics, which has worked actively with ACP in taking on challenges of the COVID pandemic. Besides informatics, Joe practices surgical pathology specializing in GU tumors. He promotes attentiveness for human factors and sustainability in informatics, and also more generally in the practice of pathology and laboratory medicine. Welcome to you both. How are you both doing? Wow. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. All right. Well, before we get going on some questions, I just have a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with their participation in the activity. All right. So, hey, yeah, welcome once again. Thanks. This is going to be a great episode. I'm really looking forward to it simply because I worked on the bench for 17 years, got really burnt out, and that's now why I work at ASCP. First, I want to kind of uh, talk about the distinction between just like regular stress and burnout. Uh, Loti, let's start with you because I know you've got a little bit of a background in this. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. This is a great question because I think there's a lot of confusion between stress and burnout, uh, particularly because stress can actually be one of the causes for burnout. Talking about the distinction is very important. 
there are a few large differences. One, um, stress, I kind of think of stress as the notion of too much. So when you have too many tasks, too many demands, too many priorities, pressures, you know, just the overall notion of, of having too many things going on in your life that we all have been there, but I would imagine where we just feel like there's too much for us to handle effectively. It is also kind of associated with some level of hyperactivity. Normally stress, it engages us. It can be, you can have good stress such as you stress, but overall uh, the, the negative stressors still can cause a lot of hyperactivity. And typically it's also intermittent. So it's not this continuous feeling. You can have very stressful moments where you wake up in the middle of the night and think about everything that you have to do. And then when you wake up in the morning, you don't necessarily feel as stressed. Burnout, on the other hand, I always think about the notion of not enough. So you don't have enough energy, you don't have enough mental stamina, you don't have enough motivation, you're feeling very depleted, um, there's a lot of pessimism involved, it can be anxiety, depression, self-doubt, and it is really continuous. Yes, you can still have good moments when you are experiencing burnout, but overall it, it's this lingering feeling that is really just not going to go away like after a weekend of self-care or, you know, an evening of just going to bed early, it's not, it's going to take a while for you to get over. Yeah. I think those are like really good, simple descriptors. Absolutely. I can relate completely to both of those states of being. Dr. Saren Troppen, Dr. Brown, do you guys have anything to add? I like what Lochi said about kind of the you stress, like um, that stress can sometimes be a good thing, right? We all function in some capacity or another where we thrive on stress. Maybe you wait till the deadline gets a little closer to where you really feel the burn and then you're more productive. Or sometimes I find that on a day when I don't have a lot to do overall, I get less accomplished. But if my schedule is packed, man, I knock everything out. Whereas burnout is never productive. Burnout doesn't have a positive side to it. It's you're just spent and you're done. Yeah, and I think um, I guess we're going to get in this conversation too. I'm glad Lodi for making the the distinction. I never, I actually never really realized that, and it kind of leads me to think, you know, if somebody's in burnout mode, are there ways to get out of it? You know, because um, I'm, I'm sure we can get into some personal stories. If there's any positive I can think about burnout and having, if you do manage to get out of it, in some ways, I think it <laughs> makes effective or maybe empathetic leaders. So it's just something that, uh, you know, it, you know, once somebody kind of goes in and acknowledges it, they, they have um, becomes part of their leadership style. I think that's actually a good thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know if I were to step back into, you know, a laboratory role as a manager or something, I would 100% be empathetic, especially. Yeah, it's just absolutely. Will it help you to recognize certain signs in others or look for ways to even prevent those things from happening? Oh, yeah. I've got a kind of um, anecdote, I guess, story. I, you know, I had left the laboratory, but I was, I'm still friends, obviously, with my, a lot of my former co-workers. And about a year after I had left the lab, I met them all out for a happy hour, right? And uh, the new girl that had started right after me, I actually helped interview her. I remember seeing her at the interview. She was perky. She was a pretty new graduate, very energetic, full of hope, full of energy. She was going to hit the ground running. And, um, I met everyone out for happy hour and like, you know, she's dressed in scrubs, which was fine, but they were like ill fitting scrubs. She hadn't washed her hair. She wasn't wearing makeup. And it's like, she had, she was already completely demoralized. It was just a really 
market different. Now I understand like in an interview situation, you're putting your best foot forward, but it was almost like, this is not the same girl that I had helped interview a year prior. And yeah, it's, it was already getting to her. No, I think you make a great point because, you know, burnout, in order to recognize burnout, we really need to look at some of the characteristics and they're really those behavioral, physical, and mental changes that can, yeah, one hand you can say, oh, maybe she just had an off day, but if it's such a stark difference with how someone was initially, clearly something is going on. It may or may not be burnout, but at least it's worth having a conversation about how can we better support you? Is there anything that I can do? Is there, you know, is your caseload too high or you know, just having those conversations, because even if there's nothing that you can do, you're, you know, to help someone, just having those conversations creates the space and the environment for people to feel supported and hopefully either overcome or prevent burnout altogether. Which is Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's entirely possible. I mean, we didn't get into it at the happy hour, but it's entirely possible she was just going through a bad breakup and she was having like a temporary depression otherwise. But yeah, like you said, if that's a, an area where a manager or supervisor could step in and be like, okay, I'm, I'm noticing some things in your private life, your private life. You don't need to tell me anything, but if this is something that's work related, then we need to work through that and talk about it. Dr. Brown, I've actually got a, a good question for you. Why are we hearing so much more about burnout now? Is I don't think it's a new phenomenon, but is, is there a reason that we're hearing about it more in the media? That's a great question. Um, it's not new. I'm certain that people have been burnt out in the past and, and even going back many years. I just think it just wasn't something to be talked about, particularly in healthcare. I think among, you know, I can speak for physicians. It's kind of like, don't complain, kind of the harder you work. It's like a badge of honor. And I love working hard. I'm not saying anything about that, but it was almost like roll with the punches you know, hours don't matter. Um, just things have, have changed quite a bit and people are focusing more on quality of life in the workplace and quality of life at home. If you're burnt out, you're bringing those negative sentiments, undoubtedly bringing it home with you. Um, so I think that if we're just a little more maybe touchy-feely in some ways. There are more stresses, you know, in the world of healthcare today all around policy type things like reimbursement with, you know, the electronic medical record. We hear a lot about these as well. So I think it's really multifactorial. I think we're more open about it. And there are not necessarily more stressors, just different kinds of stressors now that are impacting a lot of different people. Some of the, the expectations are a lot higher, I think, as well, right? We're expecting everybody. I mean, this is, this is not something new. Um, I'm sure everybody's heard it, but we expect people to parent as if they, you know, don't have a job and people to work as if they don't have any children or don't have any, you know, elders to take care of. You're expecting to give, I feel like we're, we're so often expected to give 100% of ourselves everywhere we are and in every location. And at some point, you know, we can't, I mean, we're only, we only have so much time in a day. So I think that the additional expectations that either we place upon ourselves, because I think a lot of it can also come from ourselves or that society puts on us kind of pushes us towards the next or closer to a, a potentially being burned out. Yeah, and I think that physicians are losing a lot of autonomy, particularly in the laboratory. I feel like we're seeing that more and more where the oversight, you know, technically the oversight of the laboratory by the pathologist is still there, but more and more you're seeing hospital administrators making decisions that aren't necessarily maybe in the best interest of, I don't want to say not in the best interest of the patient, but Maybe not as much of a patient lens as someone who is trained and is practicing in the field of pathology and lab medicine. And 
you know, that loss of autonomy is really, really detrimental to the morale of, of the workforce. Dr. Sintropin? Yeah, actually, I think that loss of autonomy really hit it in the head. That's a big component. But I think another thing that I've seen too, you know, I might get into a little bit of my story as well, but um, they're also what I feel are generational issues. You know, I used to be in surgery, you know, uh, before switching to pathology and uh, probably felt my time wondering what I was supposed to do with my life and so, that sort of thing. And it took a long time to get out of it, maybe finding a new area, different environment. But, you know, when I'm talking about the generational, you know, a lot of the people I work with, I was in urology, so, which is GU, and um, most of them were old men. And definitely they had a different mindset. You know, they came from a different generation. They weren't dual spouse working, you know, households. You know, they were making the money and they had a different mindset. I remember when one passed away that the, um, what people were saying, they were complimenting, oh, he showed up every day, five o'clock and left at, at midnight. It was a badge of honor. And it was just the mindset that they had. It was a badge of honor and something that was incentivized. And they were looking to all of us who are younger to actually do the same thing. And that has changed. I think, uh, you know, as the generation has gone, I, maybe it was different for them. Maybe because they had more autonomy, they felt more engaged, they had more control of their life because they weren't doing other things that modern couples do now. Face the same constraints. When you're, you're in the generation now, as Ali brought up, loss of autonomy, potentially in your lab space, you're not as engaged. And, and then you have other things, you know, if your spouse is working, you have kids, you have these other things that you're juggling that, you know, being there from 5 a.m. to midnight, that's just not going to be on your radar. That's not something to be badge of honor. It's quality of life, time, that it ends up being a lot more. And I think more and more people are probably saying, you know what, if I had a job that paid me a lot more, but took up all my time, or if they paid me a little bit less, and, but it gives me a little bit more time, people pick the latter. I think that's more, and I see that more with the generations, like, you know, the more it goes, I think people would rather pick the latter than the former. Work-life balance is such a big deal. And I I think it kind of goes back to what Dr. Brown was saying about us being a little bit more, more quote unquote, touchy-feely. It's like, no, we're more, I think, in in general, and this is as, as a society in the United States, we're more in tune with you know, these psychological effects of if we're stressed out at work or we're burned out at work, it affects everything else. If we're stressed out at home and we're burned out at home, it affects everything else. And you have to really balance that. And I think you're right. I will also say, like, as a bench technologist, I, it was never a fear of like working too, too much, right? Like I was a 40 hour a week employee, the burnout or the frustration came more on the other side that, you know, hey, I'm being asked to do 10 hours of work in eight hours, I have to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. And that's sometimes just not possible, but you're going to yell at me if I get overtime. So, I mean, that's another aspect of it, I think. Yeah, I mean, working in the laboratory, whether you're a pathologist, a medical technologist, a phlebotomist, whatever role you play, it really is extremely stressful. This is very high stakes. People usually think of high stakes as being in the operating room or in the emergency room. But rendering a diagnosis, being the first step in the ultimate treatment of a patient, is extremely nerve-wracking. And, you know, when you're in it day to day, you might not think about it as much. But I have to say now that the majority of my time is spent working at ASCP and maybe a quarter or so in practicing pathology, I'm like, this is really hard, you know, dealing with lots of cancer and bad news, you know, we sort of assimilate to that. 
But the baseline level of stress and just how heavy our, our job is, not necessarily from a workload perspective, but just from a, a stressful... From an emotional, yeah. Um, yeah, emotional it's, perspective. It's not insignificant by any means. No, not at all. I, I do remember whenever I started working at ASCP, I just... And it wasn't even just that I'm working at ASCP. It's just, you know, moving from the laboratory bench environment to an office environment. It was really interesting to me what some of my coworkers would get like upset about. And I'm like, are you, this is not anything to be upset about. Like you can just deal with this and move on, which maybe makes me a little bit not empathetic. But to your point is whenever you're dealing with stuff in the laboratory, you know, you're dealing with life and death things you know, all the time. My husband's a former prosecutor and he had the same kind of move, right? He, he got burned out being a prosecutor. He got his computer science degree and then he started being a software engineer and he had that same experience. You know, he went from working in, in an area where his decisions could put somebody in jail for 20 years to a place where someone's like really up in arms about how some code is written. So it's two different mindsets and having that a mindset. I think it's it's common all across healthcare where we're so cognizant that all of our decisions mean something to somebody and that we can't screw it up. That's a big weight on all of our shoulders. I kind of want to, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and I want to talk about technology and its potential role in, in burnout. Dr. Siren Troppen, I know that this is a particular area of interest for you. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Now, technology is a double-edged sword in many ways. And, you know, being, being in informatics, uh, some people think of us as gadget guys and stuff. People are quite surprised, or I admit it, I'm actually not the best gadget guy. If you ask me how to operate an iPhone or something like that, I know every function. I actually don't. I really use the basic stuff. I mean, I, I enable, I, you know, I love the enabling part of the technology, but I really emphasize the human factors, how people interact with it. So going back to technology, you know, technology has a chance to do things badly. And I think there's a lot of literature that's coming out in terms of EMRs. Now, we don't face that. We have LISs, which the LIS vendors know my opinion about them. But speaking about EMRs, you know, there's a lot of clicks. There's a lot of different maneuverings. I call it keypad gymnastics. A lot of different things that have nothing to do with important things like patient care. Are you looking at your patient? Are you having a one-to-one -one conversation? You know, a lot of the common complaints are they're looking at their keyboard, they're looking at their screen. It's dehumanizing the part that many physicians in the clinical space have gone into fields. And this is a case of technology being implemented poorly or not at least not being factoring in the important things about how do you encourage engagement with the patient, for instance. I think for, you know, technology itself, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there with AI algorithms, and there's a lot of concern about, is it going to take over your jobs? But there's actually a lot of opportunities, and I don't see that enough. And I like to emphasize that to the generations that are probably behind me. I'm a, you know, if I had my life to do over, I might have been in Silicon Valley and other things like that, but I'm a little bit too old to do that. But you know, the type of development I would ask for are things that make our lives as practitioners, practitioners, laboratorians, easier. So even things like managing an inbox, you know, decreasing the amount of alerts. That, that is an AI solvable problem. There's just not enough brains on it to think about it. And the brains that are on there, trust me, they're actually from the old generation. I keep knocking around. A lot of the people that are on the software companies don't have the same mindset. And they didn't really think about how does the technology that I've built 
affect the people that work on it? Does it make their lives easier? Or is it an extra menu thing that I have to go and do some gymnastics to get through? You know, this adds to your day, especially if you're in the lab, you're handling millions of phone calls and other things like that. You know, technology can be very enabling if designed well, if the humans are thought in terms of the process. I think that part gets missed. And then so I work very hard to emphasize it. You know, I think my role in terms of guiding other people that are interested in informatics is to provide them that appreciation because everybody gets enamored by the magic. You know, in some ways we look like magicians and stuff. And well, you know, as a magician, you know, I know all the tricks behind it. Nothing impresses me. I'm more concerned about how people learn the magic itself. How do they use the magic? How does it make their lives easier? And I think there's a lot of opportunities for it. And I'm going to continue that type of crusade to encourage other people to think that way. Because the people that rise to the top in this um, informatics field, a lot of them do it because they're showboating. They're saying, we've done fancy stuff. I made a diagnosis through this computer that could beat 100 other pathologists, blah, 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 that sort of thing. But I don't think, I think that misses the point that there's plenty of opportunities with AI to help make our lives easier. And simple things like the inbox, going back to that, you know, or being able to triage a lot of your cases. If you have certain cases that are more difficult than others, there's different ways to triage that to make your lives easier so that if something's out of your range, this can be flagged and go to somebody who's more expert than you. There are plenty of ways to build efficiencies and there are frameworks to do that. And that's the type of future that I like to see with technology. Back in my day, when I was in the lab, I've been uh, off the bench for about eight years now. But even then, you know, the LIS was, um, I could see how from a clinical standpoint, like a doctor having to work with an EMR. And even today, when I go to the doctor, it's like, okay, she's not really looking at me. She's just on the computer doing stuff and like inputting everything I'm telling her. And it does make it a little impersonal. And I understand that complaint. However, on like the LIS med tech side, yeah, this is great. If I don't have to type out 100,000 CFUs per mil of the Strichia coli for, you know, 50 times a day, and if I can just have three hotkeys that do that for me and then turns it out to the doctor, yeah, that's that makes my life easier, and that's what technology is supposed to do. Even better if the AI could actually predict you're going to type it out, which it can do. It can recognize the patterns of what you can do and put it in there. So you don't even have to use a hotkey. You don't even have to memorize that. Oh, my God. You don't even need the muscle memory? Like, can we just have a chip in my brain that says this is what it is? I just don't even have to type it out at all. Yeah, that's what And then it turns on the air conditioner at your house. So it's nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I start getting a hot flash at work. I, my air conditioner at home turns on. It's fine. <laughs> but like for surgical or anatomic pathology in general, you know, we used to just click off some with a pen, check off some boxes on the stains we want to order. Now, depending on your lab information system, it can be a really arduous task. I mean, I've worked with some where that's relatively easy. And I have worked with some where I cannot believe how many clicks I have to do just to get a cytokeratin. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm going to get this on a sentinel node or, you know, just you, you don't see the value add and it makes everything more tedious. And when you're already kind of stressed out and things are heaping on top of you, every little thing like that, it's the straw on the camel's back, right? Every little thing chips away at your morale and really makes a difference. So I sometimes I think we might be perceived as whining about insignificant things. It's not any one thing. It's, you know, I think it comes down to loss of control so like I used to be able to make the sheet look however I wanted, and then I would check it off. I'd walk it right over to the lab. Now I'm totally not in control about how this process works. You know, the vendor told me that it has to be done this way, that this is how we designed it. 
and I have seemingly no input into it. And that, that loss of control is extremely frustrating and can contribute to burnout. I think that Elliot, you make a fantastic point too, that like every little thing can really be that the straw or the, the final drop in the picture that made it flow over. Because I think when I experienced burnout, it was exactly the reason I knew that I was experiencing burnout was because of exactly those little moments where all of a sudden I would react to little things so emotionally that normally I would have just brushed off. So those little moments can truly have such a tremendous impact on us. Absolutely. What were some other signs, Loti, that you had that you knew that you were experiencing burnout? Um, some other signs that I remember is I was incredibly forgetful. <laughs> uh, I remember just not being able to remember anything. I remember sending an email to someone saying like, oh, I'm, you know, this is the first time I'm seeing on, on a Monday. This is the first time I'm seeing this email. I don't really know what you mean. Can you please meet about this? And their response was, Loti, this was your email from Friday, <laughs> you know? And just had absolutely no recollection of writing an email, um, stuff like that, right? To write everything down. I definitely was incredibly tired, definitely experienced a chronic fatigue. Um, I think those were the main ones. So just the emotional changes where I was overreacting to things internally because I really, you know, tried to keep it in as much as I could, which I don't necessarily think was the right decision, but that was my decision at the time, the chronic fatigue and the forgetfulness. So, and actually that's behavioral, that's physical and that's mental. So those are the three big buckets of characteristics. How about you, Dr. Sharon Troppen? Have you had like symptoms of burnout that you, that you can relate to? It was probably back in my surgery days. And I think it was exactly that the loss of energy, loss of purpose. You know, I'm fortunate in some ways that I have a purpose in terms of you know, it always seems like I'm fighting some crusade. So I understand the distinction between stress. I'm always stressed. But also, I think having a purpose helps. But during the days where, you know, I wasn't sure. There was a time I didn't even know I was going to stay in medicine. Before I went to pathology, I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, basically, everything was on the table. And that loss of autonomy, loss of identity, loss of a lot of things. You know, in some ways, it was fortunate, you know, but, you know, I don't even know how I managed to get out probably because... It, things sort of happened. I went to pathology, you know, found, I sort of discovered new paths that I could go down. That helped. And, you know, in many ways, I think I consider myself lucky from that standpoint. But yeah, that, those, are, those are some of the things that I think about. I just wanted to go back to the previous point that not everybody touched upon about this girl that broke the camel's back. That's what makes burnout very difficult to um, take on because, you know, you can't point to one thing and nobody's going to be, you know, I call it like the diffusion of accountability. So if you blame it on the EMR only, the EMR was like, well, it's not our fault. It's the conglomeration of everything, just adding on. And every, for instance, MOC, board exam, you got to take your maintenance certification. Well, we don't have SAMs anymore, but you got to take your SAMs thing. I have a um, DA license. So I have to take a narcotics, you know, a prescription provider thing. And I don't even prescribe. It's just this extra mandate, extra mandate. You would be penalized. You don't put this billing code properly. Oh, you got to put this other SNOMED ICDL code. What's that for? It's for the data scientists. No, you're going to be penalized. All these mandates, all these different things just add up. And it, it creates a great environment of where everybody can say, not my fault. I'm not the contributing party. And I think that's the problem. I, and that's why it takes, I think, on a holistic level to look at it, that everything contributes. It's maybe not necessarily one thing. Some things are bigger than others. But even start tackling. I think before people would say, no, nah, they would just step back and say, not, not, my, not me. We're not the problem. It's somebody else. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I think uh, people are, are wisening up to that. 
Yeah, I kind of want to tie what you guys are saying with like a holistic, basically systemic reasons why we're, uh, we in healthcare in general and we in the laboratory in particular are getting burnt out and straws and camels and backs. I kind of want to tie it into the question that you can't get, you know, four people in a room for an hour and not talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. It's so huge. It affects so much. And in the laboratory, as in society, it really holds up a mirror and it shows you the cracks that maybe you didn't want to see before, but we're always present, but you just didn't want to look at. What are you guys seeing in terms of the pandemic? And, and is that impacting the amount of burnout we're seeing? Is it impacting how that, that burnout is displayed? Are we starting to see some big turnovers yet? Like what, what's your experience that you guys are seeing right now? I think, yes, absolutely. I think the current pandemic is impacting the amount of burnout we see. Um, I think it's impacting everyone's well-being on a very significant level, both, I think, if you're looking, you know, just really overall as an entire society in terms of people who have lost their jobs, people whose jobs have maybe been reduced or changed, um, have increased. Um, you know, I you think you look at pathology and laboratory medicine, those working on COVID testing have clearly seen a tremendous increasing in tests work hours, stress, and therefore also burnout. I mean, how many stories have we all heard about people working weeks on end without a day off? You know, and again, like it's all those little things that add on. Um, and then you add the level of uncertainty about when is this pandemic going to end? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's continuing way longer than I would imagine anybody would have anticipated in the beginning and especially anyone had hoped for. You know, there's a lot of fear. There's there's still a lot of uncertainty. But there's a lot of things that we don't know. So again, I think all of those things really add. I think there's a lot of burnout and honestly, potentially even PTSD related to this pandemic that we're not seeing because we're still in it. I think so much of our emotions we're able to kind of like push down and we just keep going. We're just going to continue on um, until there's a moment of rest, there's a moment of pause. And since we're still so knee deep in the pandemic at this point, I think that we're not really seeing the true impact pandemic has on the amount of burnout we see. I think once this is all over, I think we will really know and see the amount of burnout um, that it has caused. Specifically for pathologists, it's been an interesting impact, uh, a lot of decrease in volume in anatomic pathology. So those pathologists who sort of eat what they kill, you know, those people who are in private practice saw a huge decrease in volume and in resulting billing and may end up owing back to their practice, you know, or might take a while for volumes to come back up. Again, this is this loss of control. And when you make loss of control something financial, that's extremely stressful. So, you know, you get kind of used to uh, and you plan your lifestyle oftentimes around what you're used to bringing home. And I think for some folks in the private practice arena, in fact, for many, they were significantly impacted by the decrease in volume that we saw just because um, elective procedures were put off in order to, and still are being put off in, in many areas, in order to keep hospital beds open and ICU beds open, et cetera. So almost the opposite, like they're not working as hard, but they can do about it and it's bringing revenues down. You may have to lay off um, some staff members. That's extremely disruptive. And the folks in academics are having huge challenges in how they train residents. Can they sit at a two-headed scope 
Are the residents all distance learning? So all of this just change and loss of control certainly could lead to burnout as a pathologist. Yeah, I'd say it's not only a straw, it's a big log in terms of uh, the COVID. And it's also accelerant, like the lighter fluid. So people that are already slipping, it's pretty, um, because, you know, you know, New York, it was everybody here. And I know I'm sad to hear it's happening everywhere else. There were times that changed and the drastic change. It was like, you know, there were there were times that not necessarily me at my institution, but um, other people, they were going to get deployed. They're pathologists on the front lines with no PPE. Their lives are at, yeah, potentially at risk. They had no protection whatsoever. We had supplies. Nobody was being tested. The uncertainty, nothing was open. Gosh, just all these different transitions over the last couple months. And I've seen it too. You know, the, the pathologists that don't necessarily get deployed, you know, their, their businesses are, are basically um, run down just like every other business that's around here. The uncertainty is really added to that. And now there's talks, you know, among many you know, healthcare institutions, we need to cut back. That means that either you have to, you know, work harder or we won't be hiring you extra ancillary staff. You know, there's people that have job security issues. We don't know if you're still going to be there for next year. Your contracts are renewed. All this uncertainty, you know, you can only imagine, you know, what that plays in folks' minds. The uncertainty, we don't know when it's going to end. People are putting hopes on a vaccine. What if that disappoints? Gosh, you know, I think uh, it's one of those things that, um, I wish there was something that could help alleviate it, like some sense of hope, something that's encouraging. And I think that's the part that I think we're missing because we don't have that. You know, we don't have a, a clear path out. We're, we're sort of riding it out and we're hoping that, you know, things will kind of run. And I think that's, it's going to continue. And as Lodi mentioned, I, I think we can only imagine what comes out of this. Um, the lab has been really pressed. I mean, I have the laboratorians on this side, they're working super hard. I'm working on an initiative to try to alleviate the burden about reporting, for instance, that's an extra straw that you don't even have to deal with when you're trying to get tests online, you know, with the, during this COVID epidemic. And I think the other thing that I also want to mention that, you know, this, the lab had a tremendous important role in this COVID epidemic. And yet you don't see, I, I, maybe I, I, I don't feel it, but I don't see enough recognition. You know, you hear about the ER, the frontline people, but the champions are the faces of the lab. You know, we're not robots, you know, not everything's a machine putting the faces of people in the lab, that they're doing the tests, I think was, um, you know, and have maybe the public appreciate that there's people behind us that's trying to actually do our best to, to be, you know, a strategy in terms of um, tackling this pandemic. So there's just a lot of different things. And, um, you know, maybe that would help the recognition from the lab side, you know, that yes, you're working hard, you're doing all these different things, but you're our warriors, you know, that would, that would help. I, I think for the laboratorians, I would think. Yeah, I think that I th this is just all anecdotal from what I'm hearing from you know friends and former colleagues. Yeah, there's furloughs happening. There's much like the 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 AP pathologist, right? You know, it's like, well, we we closed down our onco clinic for a month, so we had to furlough two hematology techs, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's like different areas are getting really busy. Obviously, like the molecular departments, they're bringing in new platforms or trying to get testing live. They're, you know, selling their kidneys on the black market so they could get reagents, you know, that sort of thing. I kind of heard through the grapevine of a few folks that were having like, you know, ending up in the ER with heart palpitations because yeah, it's from stress of trying to put out 2000 tests a day. Yeah. It's very much a, it's very much a factor. And also I think that, I don't know if I 
can speak for everybody, but one of the contributing factors of the burned out I experienced was what you were saying, Dr. Sharon Troppen, like the, the lack of recognition in the general public and even in, in the healthcare sphere. There was a, a nurse who would always come every year to do our TB skin testing. Every year she would have a conversation with at least one person in the lab. It's like, I just can't believe you guys need a four year degree to do your job. And every year I had to, you know, not strangle her. <laughs> so it's one of it's, but it's one of those straws, right? On the, on the back. And I think the pandemic is just, because right now maybe we're, the laboratory is getting a little bit of recognition, but it's in the light of you guys aren't working hard enough or fast enough or doing your job well enough because it's taking a week to get a test result. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely tough. All right. Well, let me, I'm going to once again, transition. We're, we've got a few more questions for you guys before, before we run out of time. I'll start with you, Dr. Brown. How did you deal with burnout and looking back, what would you do differently? Uh, that's a great question. I've played the what would I do differently game many times. So I really got burnt out. It was this lack of autonomy. It was taking things too much to heart. And when you look at the burnout research and the things that we put together for our burnout course, you know, it talks about people who are very um, empathic, young females. I was young at the time, you know, just really like being devoted to your job. You know, I was in a job where I thought I would be for the rest of my life. It was what I had always wanted to do. And whenever someone uh, in the department, whether it was a resident, another faculty member, was dissatisfied about something, and these were valid things, I really took it to heart and wanted to try to fix it. But sometimes in large organizations, it's very difficult to accommodate things that even when they seem like a no-brainer, like, oh, of course it should be this way. I mean, we're not doing what's best for patients. We're not doing what's best for resident education and blah, blah, blah. But real life doesn't necessarily always work that way. And um, if I had to do it all over again, I think I would take a step back and really try to prioritize things and try to look at things bigger picture and really try to look at maybe really evaluating whether that particular setting was the right setting for me as a person. You know, people would continually tell me, you have to stop caring so much. You know, you just have to not worry about it. You just have to come to work, sign out your cases, go home, don't worry about it. And I'm not that person. And when I started becoming that person, that was one of the signs that I saw that I was getting burnt out, apathy. I just said, I, nothing I can do about it, don't come to me anymore, Pessim pessimism, you know. I became very, I'm a very, I'm actually a really positive person. I mean, some of my favorite things to do are like, for instance, to teach like group fitness, you know, nothing, that's like a positivity explosion. I started to forget who I was. I had become a very negative person focused on things that weren't going right. When it just changes kind of the thread of your being, that's a big warning sign. And, you know, I ended up taking that home and just being really sad in the evening. And my kids are very little at the time. I have a very understanding husband, thank goodness. And at some point he just said, you know what? Oh, you should quit that job. And I was like, quit that job. I mean, what a revolutionary way of thinking. Like I would never think I would quit a job. And like Joe was saying about, I mean, when he was in surgery, how many years, you know, have you put into this already to think about completely changing gears is terrifying. It's terrifying to think about changing gears. If you're one year into something, 
much less four years of medical school, four years of residency, two years of fellowship, and you know, four years in at associate professor level saying, you know what, maybe I just need to completely switch gears and do something else. It's insane, you know, but you can do it, you know, and I think that's something, one of the things, just to get back to your question, I would have done differently was to be more open-minded about what my purpose was and what job maybe best suited for. That's a really big one because I would never have thought I would be in the current, I'm grateful to be working for ASCP and thankfully I had a long history with ASCP as a volunteer. I love this job. It's fantastic. And I still get to sign out surgical pathology and I still get to do the things I love about pathology, but then I can sort of like step away from it as well. So when I really just didn't even like being a pathologist anymore, I knew there was a problem. Like when I came home, I was like, I just don't even want to do this anymore. I mean, my residents had given me a t-shirt that said, I love pathology. I'm like so wild about pathology. You know, I'm just yeah. like, love it. I went from that to like, oh, I don't even want to, I just don't even want to go to work. And that's not me at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would have reevaluated maybe, is it me or is it the job or is it both? You know, just in low T mentioned this, like thinking that it's, it's not like it's overwhelming. It's said that you're not enough. Like you cannot give it enough and, and things like that. I never felt overworked. I mean, I almost, I'm kind of still in that badge of honor kind of thing. I like having, I, I love being the person who signs out the most cases in a month. I want to see everybody's numbers and beat everybody. But when I just don't feel like I even want to do that anymore, then something's wrong. Dr. Sierentropin, what, what was your experience? Well, you know, as I mentioned, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't have that now, fortunately, because I, uh, a lot of my friends know that I take on crusades and stuff. So I have, you know, I have things that provide me purpose. The thing that I do try to, I am very mindful of because I see folks around me. I do have friends, I have colleagues, I have, you know, trainees, and I see it and I see what they go through because my situation is different. I've had some fortunate circumstances happen that helped enable me to get out of the rut that I was on before and I've, I've done, and don't get me wrong. I do have my moments. There are times that I question like, what the heck am I doing? What, what's the purpose of this? And what's the point? What got me interested in this is because I see it from in terms of the field, you know, my, my concern is, you know, I, I don't, I think the generations are different. I think the days of somebody being able to sit at work, you know, 14 hours a day, never leave. Uh, the, the story about the old pathologist who wanted to hug the microscope before hitting the funeral you know, those days are done, you know, and I'm concerned that there's a lot of pressure for people to do um, RV work in New York City. In general, they like, you know, high amounts of RVUs. And whenever you go to a private job, it tends to be pretty high. And, you know, it doesn't leave much room for work-life balance. And I start seeing it. You see the fatigue over time. Yeah, they want to stay around the city for whatever reason, but over time it deteriorates. And then it ends up being kind of like, I'm just there for the job. Nothing really, you know, and it's just like what I heard from Ali, just like, you know, there was times that I wanted to improve things. I wanted to improve things in the lab. But now it's just like I show up to work. I get my job done. I don't make noise. I don't cause any trouble and I go home. It's just a job. You know, that's a shame. Maybe some people find that that's okay. But I think true, you know, happiness with their work requires some engagement. And once you hit that point, you, know, you got a question. Are they burned out? Is it something that's happened where they've had this learned helplessness? They're not able to do anything much. And then now it just becomes a, a means to an end. It generates a salary. It gets me one day close to retirement. I think that's sad in many ways. And I don't want to see that. I think that's the reason why I keep engaging this. I want to find different ways to do that. Is there different things that we can do to change that so that we ensure sustainability for our, our field? 
Joe, that makes me think about something one of my mentors once told me, and this is a mentor, not just in pathology, but in life. I mean, she's amazing. She, and it was during the time I sought her counsel, she had already retired actually, um, when I was going through this really hard time, making this huge decision about my career, changing my career dramatically. And she, with tears in her eyes, told me, you know, my whole life, I've had a job. I want you to have a career. Wow. You know, and so Joe, you saying that really it brings back her saying that to me and it's always really stuck with me. There's a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It reminds me a little bit. I always, when I have, I have to make very difficult decisions, I always think about what I would do if I weren't, if I wasn't afraid. And I think that really helps it because so much of it, you know, we, we can just be, it can be very scary to make these large decisions about our career or our personal lives and, just it always helps me to think about like what would I do if I wasn't afraid and what decision would I make and it usually leads me to make the right one in that moment. I love that Loti, you know, and there's this fear of quitting. There's a book called Fear of Quitting, you know, like that quitting is a bad thing. Quitting is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, if you're quitting something that isn't bringing value to your life or if even worse, something that's decreasing the value of, of your life, especially when you bring it home. So really reevaluating and changing from being a surgeon to a pathologist or leaving a job that you thought you were married to, um, it's extremely stressful, but it, it can in the long run really be for the best. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a tough call to make. Once you get to the burnout stage, you have that well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know, whatever. I've done this for 20 years. Obviously, I have to keep doing that. Well, no, you don't. I mean, you can still maybe work in the laboratory, but maybe you just need a different laboratory or you need need to maybe think of things, you know. There are many ways you can use this degree in healthcare adjacent realms, you know. So, yeah, you have to really do what's best for yourself. And I have to tell you, like, Six years ago, when I kind of transitioned out of full-time being a doctor, uh, practicing medicine, practicing pathology, people were like, what are you doing? Like, oh my God. I remember my father-in-law, he's a retired ENT. He, he just could not even conceptualize it. But even my peers, they were like, whoa. And over the past six years, now people are like asking me, how did you do it? Do you know any opportunities? I mean, things have changed a lot. People's uh, attitudes about that have changed a lot. I, I feel like it used to be more like, in fact, when I first went to a more administrative type job, I was so worried that people would think I did that because I'm a bad pathologist, you know, because <laughs> you always think in the old days, kind of sometimes people had to get kind of like pushed off to the side and repurposed, you know, I don't think that's so much the case anymore. Maybe that was maybe a, a bias that we kind of thought about in the past. Now people kind of see how the skills that they have garnered in their profession, in their identity, because it really is our identity we're talking about how they can be used elsewhere, like you just said, Kelly. Well, and I think that kind of goes back to uh, what Dr. Saren Trapman was saying about like the old school mentality. Because yeah, I heard stories like that in the lab. It's like, oh, so-and-so doesn't work in blood bank anymore because yeah, she just couldn't hack it or whatever. It's like, well, you know, that, that may be true, that may be not true, but maybe it's just like, you know what, maybe that just wasn't the best fit for her and there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> you know? So I kind of want to shift just a little bit to a question for you, Loti, what can leaders do to prevent uh, burnout in their staff? Is there anything they can do? Is there anything they should be doing? Like, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think I honestly think that burnout is a leadership issue. Um, I think that leaders can cause burnout in their staff. They can help prevent it. They can help overcome it. So I would absolutely equate the two together. There are three main buckets of how leaders can be involved in burnout. One is the prevention. One is the is overcoming it if they know that some of their staff may have burnout. But then also a lot about the organizational culture. I think Dr. Sarah Trappen commented on it earlier on about how you know certain work environments can really you know like having that badge of honor of like oh I'm, I'm working till midnight or something like that. I think that clearly contributes to a work culture that does not encourage people to take time from themselves. We all need time to recharge in whichever way that looks. Um, and so I think that that is really important. So I think in terms of organizational culture, there's a lot you can do. Um, you can clearly communicate openly, standing for something meaningful, having a large purpose. Uh, authenticity is clearly important. The more people are feel that they can be themselves at work in whichever capacity they're currently feeling, I think that's really important. But I think you know, and create like a vision and, and just overall work environments that are really conducive to uh, collaboration and authenticity, um, I think is essential. In terms of prevention, I mean, clearly it's really important to watch out for warning signs. And we talked about those behavioral, physical and mental changes. So just as a recap, behavioral, it's just any emotional change that can be anger, can be upset, people who are irritated or just have emotional outbursts. If people start isolating themselves suddenly, um, loss of appetite, just any change, a significant change in behavior that is lasting, that is not normal for that particular person. Um, also, of course, physical, which you may or may not know because people may or may not feel comfortable sharing, hopefully because of your organizational culture that you're, you're creating, that you are comfortable sharing it. But it's like, you know, chronic headaches, stomach issues, fatigue, anxiety, depression. Again, a lot of them will... will bleed into behavioral changes as well. And then those mental changes such as self-doubt, pessimism, anxiety, forgetfulness, depression. Once you actually think that people have burnout or that there's a potential for, um, I think one of the most important things is to really validate feelings and concerns and really try to listen and not necessarily try to fix things. Because again, Burnout is not something that you can fix immediately. So it's more like just opening up the conversation to having clearly you want, you know, you want people to overcome it. But I think there's this fixing mentality of like, oh, let me quickly fix something. And I don't think that's really productive in terms of burnout. I think we need to look at longer term solutions because burnout is a longer term issue. And then just, you know, research any resources that may be available at your institution. A lot of um, institutions offer wellness programs. So seeing wells is there you know, offer any other types of help, um, anything that you can do to just have those conversations. I think sometimes we, we think like, oh, someone is burned out. Let me take job responsibilities away from them. But as we discussed in the last hour or so, that it's really not that notion of having too much is the notion of having not enough. So then it can also, it can really exasperate the feeling of burnout if now you're taking tasks away. Because what if that task brings people a lot of joy and they want to keep it. And now they feel, you know, like it can feel more like a punishment, which then can only increase the burnout. So I think there's a lot of things that people can do. Um, and even if you're, if you're not like a leader of people, I, I always think of leadership as being a leader within your own life and with your colleagues or with, if you do, you know, if you do have direct reports or, and even with your supervisors, I think there's so many ways in which we can lead that it's not just 
not just leadership in terms of a supervisory position, but yeah. So I think it's absolutely important for leaders just to be aware of them and, and create those platforms for people to prevent and overcome it as needed. And I think turnover is a big warning sign. So turnover doesn't just happen because the hospital down the street pays a higher hourly wage or because people only stay in a job now for so-and-so years, whereas they used to stay forever. I hear these excuses getting tossed around a lot everywhere. I mean, this is not specific to any organization or anything. And I think it's hard sometimes for organizations or apartments, sections, whatever kind of... Uh, hierarchy we're talking about here within the hospital or within the laboratory to take an honest look and think, what is the cause of this? Because you usually people, they want to do a good job. They want to enjoy their job. They've chosen this for a reason. Why, you know, I think a lot of times it's like, oh, we keep hiring the wrong people or something like that. I would just encourage leaders out there because leadership really has to be involved in, in really diffusing these situations to really take an honest look and to, to listen to their people, listen to those frontline workers, the boots on the ground, about the conditions with a just an open mind and, and with some inner honesty as well. Yeah, I'm gonna second that, what, every, what everybody has said. I mean, this gets to change management. How do you change a culture? Because burnout should be embedded, the recognition of this, well-being should be recognition of a culture that hasn't been emphasized. Uh, until maybe only recently, and it's only beginning. Um, I've, I've seen CEOs, the reason why they got put on by their board of trustees is because they either bring in productivity, how many grants their faculty have, how many publications that they have, how many patients they see, how many cases, how many RVUs you generate. These numbers, these metrics, I call it the Amazoning of you know, very skilled labor, you know, treating you as a metric, your value as a metric. That leads to burnout because there's so many externalities to the metrics you know, that bring value to people's lives, to the organization. They don't get appreciated. And when people have a metric to aim for, like you said, you're only valued because of your RVUs, people will hit it. People will hit it, but at the cost of other things. And in the end, that, that diminishes the organization. So recognition of well-being. There's been countless studies, even though it's not been implemented, that well-being does translate to productivity. You know, that it's just that people don't necessarily trust it. They aim for the productivity metric first without actually thinking about the well-being. And I think, so if I, you know, if I was the overload, I, I like ubiquitous things. You know, when I, when I think of change management versus yourself, if you're an up and coming leader, you can learn about being aware of the people that you're in charge of, that you're aware of managing up, managing down, all those different things. There's a bottom-up approach, the younger generations realizing that this is very important well-being, but also the top down. I don't think we have enough CEOs and enough MBAs. I don't, I don't think it's part of the curriculum to recognize well-being. I'd be shocked, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but you make it ubiquitous so that training of people that go to higher administration, people that become that, they have to do like the rest of us, SAMs and MOCs, there should be maintenance. As part of their maintenance is a recognition of well-being and different ways. If there's a high turnover, I think that boss should be looked at, like what's the problem going on here? I don't, you see a lot of bosses, they still maintain their job because productivity RVU-wise is high, Turnover is high, but that gets neglected. Those are the dystopian types of things that we have to change. So, you know, my, my strategy is to tack it on top down, bottom up, and yourself. I totally agree, Joe. And you, you said something that really, you know, you're singing the hymn of the laboratory, right? Because no matter how shorthanded you are, the work is going to churn out. The answers are going to come out the black box. 
And people are going to just forget that there's anything bad going on down there, you know, that people are stressed out or that you're shorthanded, that turnover's high because the thing that they rely on is there and they don't see how you're going about getting that product. Uh, we can also talk about diagnostic accuracy, right? Errors that pathologists can make because they're in a pressured environment, whether they are overburdened with, with volume or if they're just in a very negative environment. Uh, it's a patient safety issue for sure. So when you said that, Joe, just made me think patient safety, this is a legitimate real thing. Like when we talk about nurses in the ICU can only have X number of patients that they staff, we have it for cytotechnologists, of course, with pap screening because of prior uh, litigation issues. But, you know, we don't really have that sort of a thing for pathology. Like how many pathologists do you need for a certain amount of volume, plus tumor boards, plus teaching residents and medical students, et cetera. Um, it's just sort of like as long as the answers are still coming, we're okay with it. Yeah, and I think, you know, there has to be mechanisms to break certain things, like a toxic environment. We don't really gauge that very well, and toxic environments lead to safety issues. There's countless, you know, stories of if the culture is so that people keep quiet, then important issues that are recognized by people that are actually working on the front lines don't get raised to leaders. And then, you know, tragic Six Sigma events actually happen. You see these in airline crashes where the captain is doing their own thing. No one has the courage to tell them there's a problem going on. So, you know, there's so many things that are in it and you have to break that cycle, that this uh, dysfunctional culture that's there and you have to create these mechanisms. And that's why things like the checklist, if you're in the OR, you just go down this checklist, doesn't matter who you are. Somebody can break the cycle and say, stop. You know, and I think these things have to be sort of embedded, Rec the recognition that everybody's input is important, that everybody's thoughts and perspectives are important, you know, and that you can't guess when something's going to go wrong. But by being able to be transparent, open, a safe environment really helps, you know, make patient safety, everything else really become much more enabled. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what we're talking about is kind of a cultural shift, a paradigm shift uh, that has to happen in, in the laboratory. And I think that we've made some inroads, we've made some beginnings, but I, everything you guys are saying, yeah, there's more change that needs to happen. All right. Well, I think we're, we're kind of out of time. I just want to thank you guys all for participating. Obviously I, I could discuss this for more, for longer, but today we're out of time, but thank you again so much for, for joining us. Thanks. Finally, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the AACP store on our website at www.acp.org. And be sure to tell all your colleagues and tell all your friends to uh, listen to the podcast and you can find us on your favorite podcast aggregators. 